So it's so lovely to see everyone here today. Thank you all so, so much for being here. I can see in the chat already that there's a bunch of people watch, uh, putting in where they're watching from. So uh, please carry on doing that. Let us know where you're watching from. I can see Rotterdam, Cambridge, Dublin, Manchester, Aberdeen, Suffolk. Uh, oh man, it's always just so wicked to see everyone every week. So thank you all so, so much for being here. Um, so last time Carrie spoke here, then uh, the community was on fire. That chat feature stayed just like it was ridiculous. And then my notifications for the two weeks afterwards, likewise, it was, it was, it was crazy. So my challenge for you is to make sure that we do the same again, because right now, like this community is on fire, but that's all down to all of you. And this session will be a success if all of you continue to contribute in just the most lovely way, like all of you are right now. So every session I start off with three key points uh, that will, will sort of make today's session a success. Uh, and in my view, those three points are these things. The first is that uh, you walk away having learned something new or having had your perspective changed on uh, the topics that we're going to be discussing today. If we can move the dial that 1% for you, then we're doing our job just right. Number two, the chat feature, as I mentioned, stays alive throughout the duration. Uh, as much as Ken Wright and Carrie will be doing their best to entertain and inform today, the other half of this team right now today is all of you watching in today. So keep that chat feature going, look to support each other, be positively lovely, listen and say hello. Uh, that's the most important thing. You'll be able to hear Annie in the background as well. She's, uh, she's contributing. <laughs> <laughs> she's just started like doing this, this shouting thing. That's the cutest thing ever. And thirdly, uh, the thing that, third thing that will make today a success is that you share it. Uh, and I want to just say a big, big thank you to everyone who shared the session so far. Uh, this community has grown. It's got more and more lovely over the course of time because we bring more and more lovely people in. So, um, you know, please do share today's session. If you're up for those three sessions, uh, those three challenges, then let's get going with today's session. And with today's session, then I want to introduce our guests. So we've got Stephen Kemwright, also known as Kemwright, if you ask Kerry, uh, Carrie, and then we've got Carrie Rose. Uh, they are the founding team behind Rise at Seven. Uh, Rise at Seven are best described as a bit of a rocket ship. And if we're going to be really stretching that analogy, uh, then it's a rocket ship that the fuel is creativity, novel ideas, a healthy dose of self-confidence um, and a lot of hard work. All in all, this leaves them in a place where Rise at Seven is absolutely flying. And there is one element of that that's really, really important. And that's the bit about ideas. Um, I think so often that we all, we all have been in this situation where we've all had them. And we all thought, oh, this is going to work. But actually have the confidence to sort of pitch that in and do something that's going to truly transform the business. Well, you know, we're speaking with two people today who have done that, not only for their own brand, but for brands around the country and around the world. Uh, today's session will feature a presentation uh, and then we'll also have time for Q&A, hopefully. Um, and to do that, make sure that you pop your questions in the little Q&A feature down below. I can see that there's one in there already. Uh, so you'll be able to see it. It says Q&A with, uh, with a little one bubble right there. Uh, but make sure to get your questions in. And just as a quick observation, the questions that get asked first tend to be the ones that also get a big thumbs up nice and early. So uh, make sure to, uh, to get those questions in. 
And uh, finally, before we get going, I also want to thank our sponsors. Uh, this week's featured sponsor is Fiverr. Uh, Fiverr are a marketplace for freelancers. <laughs> Change says morning, Annie. She's making herself known this morning. Uh, Fiverr is a, a, a marketplace for freelancers. They've got freelancers in over 300 categories. We use them a ton. We counted up the other day and we actually got 22 freelancers that we use on the regular from Fiverr now. Um, but, um, you know, we've got a bunch of other, uh, stuff from there. Uh, I'd really, really recommend checking them out. So please do. And also a big thank you to our other sponsors. We've got Impression, Content Cow, Pitch, Fiverr, Redgate, Cambridge Martin College, Brand Recruitment, Gravity Global, Third Light, and Geosk. Uh, one ask from me is to say a big thank you to them. Uh, they're the people that help us keep this community going. And without all the different pillars, so uh, our efforts, the community effort, the sponsors effort, then none of this would happen. So that's my introduction done with contributions from my five month year old uh, baby, Annie. And uh, so Kemright, Carrie, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for taking the time and uh, the stage is yours. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here, definitely. <laughs> I, I am disrupting Carrie today, right? So Carrie has already had a disruption. She's stranded in Portugal, uh, which, you know, I'm not going to say that I'm not jealous, but it's, it's uh, stranded nonetheless. So she was supposed to be home right now. And what we've kind of done here is I've put together a deck and then I'm going to surprise her in the middle with the things that she's going to talk about. And then I'm going to jump in back at the end. So it's going to be a little bit, a little bit different to some of our, our presentations. Um, but I don't think that's a bad thing. I think a little bit of spontaneity and, you know, jumping in and out with questions and that kind of thing isn't, isn't a bad thing. So what we wanted to talk about today is disruption and what we mean by disruption. For us, being a, an agency where we, you know, are only two years old, so we are already pitching to and winning global brands and have been since day one. And the only way that you can win a global brand on day one is when you are punching above your weight, you are disrupting the market, you are changing the status quo from massive agencies with global capabilities with hundreds of staff and all the data and all the tech and switching the emphasis onto creativity, onto an idea that can beat the world because it's a better idea. So our view of disruption is how do we get the things that we want to do done when in reality they shouldn't exist? So our agenda today, we're going to talk about why disruption is a good thing, why we should aim for that, why we should shoot for disruption. And then I'm going to hand over to Carrie to talk about some of the disruptive things that we've done over the last couple of years, made a big effort to not use any of the case studies that Carrie showed last time. So brand new inspiration, new stuff and different things that, you know, quite a few of them we haven't really spoken publicly about before. And then at the end, I'm going to talk a little bit about how do you get those things done? So how do you convince people to go for something that maybe they would find a little bit difficult to get on board with usually because it's out of their comfort zone and why why there are so many tips and tricks and just easy things that you can implement in your day-to-day -day lives that are going to help to get you to get that thing done and then we can talk through business cases and all that kind of thing and questions as well so without further ado I want to talk a little bit about a brand from Great Britain called Burberry. So if you are not from Great Britain, if you are particularly from the US or parts of Europe, you will see a photo like this and you will probably think, ah, 
that's Burberry, that is. That's Cara Delevingne, that's Kate Moss. They are the faces of Burberry. Kate Moss has been the face of Burberry for 20 years or something ridiculous. She's been around for a long time with this brand. It's so closely tied and connected. And you'd see a photo like that, you'd see that kind of style of jacket and you would probably think if you were certainly in marketing, you'd think that is a Burberry shop, that is. But if you are of the age that I am of, uh, and I suspect Joe will definitely uh, feel the same sort of way about this, when you see a shot like this, you think of Burberry. <laughs> So this is, I don't know if anyone knows MC Devo. He's a, he's a Doncaster phenomenon, but MC Devo was an early kind of parody music, music artist. Uh, really sad story recently. He's actually, or actually recently was a school teacher. And then the original MC Devo uh, YouTube channel got found by some of the kids and he got fired. And it's really sad because, you know, it's obviously 20 years old, but MC Devo was a guy who, wore Burberry and took the piss of chavs basically and chav culture and Burberry became synonymous in the early 2000s in the UK that was you know kick-started by Daniela Westbrook EastEnders actress dressed head to toe in Burberry baby dressed head to toe in Burberry I think she had a Burberry umbrella and it just suddenly from that moment on switched and became a chav brand and what if you aren't familiar with chavs as well these are people who uh, are generally kind of low income who uh, maybe are the type of people that you would stereotype nowadays as being the ones causing trouble after england losing the european championship final in the center of london uh, not necessarily the the gentrified population of london maybe the maybe the opposite end of that and for a while this was in theory, hugely damaging to Burberry. So you've got Campaign Magazine talking about the chaving of Burberry and how that's a huge vulnerability for the brand. Burberry admitted that that link to chavs affected demand for Burberry uh, in the Mail Online. Finally, this is 2017 in the Mail, Burberry has finally shaken off its chav check reputation and millennials are starting to be interested in Burberry again. This is, this is 15 to 20 years later, Burberry has lost this market image. And right in the middle, this one's really interesting because this is, this is where disruption uh, can become a little bit difficult to understand because this is The Guardian in 2004, Burberry doffs its cap to chaps. 2004, right in the middle of this whole, I don't want to call it a crisis. Chaps probably weren't a crisis, but you know, this 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 uh, phenomenon that was chaps. And there's, an, there's, a, there's a quote in here from Mark Britson that said, Burberry's strategy of not trying to stop down market customers, chaps, championing the brand has prevented it from coming across as snobbish. And there's another thing in there. The reason why the article is called Burberry Doffs Its Cap to Chavs is because this is two years into the Chav Burberry phenomenon. And in the seven years prior to this article being written, Burberry's market cap went from 200 million to 2 billion pounds. Burberry's market is not the UK primarily. Burberry sells everywhere in the US, in the Netherlands, across Europe. No one knows that Burberry is associated with Chavs. Burberry moved on and Burberry finally shook that image in the UK, but it really wasn't a huge problem for the brand. It flew. So what I want to talk about is the fact that this happened. The fact that Burberry had their beautiful product imagery, Burberry had their brand ambassadors that they chose, but it doesn't matter which brand ambassadors you choose, it's which brand ambassadors choose you. It's who 
are going to talk about your brand and what are they going to say? And they are your marketing. Now you don't have the ability to dictate what people say about your brand. It isn't your brand anymore. Actually brand managers are more like football managers. If you are the type of person, and I literally threw this slide in while we were talking to Joe just before. So this is a brand new one. Uh, Brand managers are like football managers because what you do as a brand manager is you set the agenda. You talk about the philosophy of the team. You get your team together and you say, this is how we're going to do things. But then the whistle goes and it's not up to you anymore. Other people are out there representing your brand and you can do something. You can intervene somewhere, but you've got a limited number of substitutions here. Once you set the agenda, you have to accept that other people are playing this game for you. So you got to be prepared to be disrupted and advertising is totally democratic now so one minute briefs the community on twitter particularly but you know they've got a few different channels that they're on as well perfect example of anyone can do advertising for your brand it's not your brand this is a one of my favorite one minute brief ads ever this is a guinness ad um that freelance copywriter called luke created it was so good that Adweek picked it up there are a bunch of people actually that shared it because they thought it was a guinness ad and it just looks like one and the reason is because guinness then just started doing it they saw this format and thought that is so good i assume they paid him for it i'm not going to comment on diageo's ethics but they just took this format and ran with it and started doing these things on their own channels because someone had come up with a great idea for their company, even though it wasn't theirs. We do this kind of thing all the time. So Carrie talked a little bit about the Bernie chair last time for Ikea. Take the format that Ikea often do and just have a cultural moment and tie that to a brand because brand means something. A brand brings context to that cultural conversation so that that moment becomes shareable because it's that meaning that comes from the brand. It's that meaning that comes from the moment. And that's what makes a joke. That's what makes something funny. That's what makes something relevant at that time. And we do this kind of thing all the time. So another one of Carrie's, another one of the team at Rise at Seven reacting to uh, Marmite's Dynamite billboard where um, part of the, to the top of the, the lid has come off and, and smashed a windscreen. So we put an auto glass fan next to it. This kind of thing happens constantly. Rise at Seven are not the only people doing this. Do Autoglass appreciate this? Actually, yes. They sent us messages saying, thank you. This is, this is good advertising for us, but it's not up to Autoglass whether it happens. We're doing this a lot more, actually. One of the things that we've launched recently is the public pitch. So on the 7th of every month, we will pitch publicly some creative to whichever brands we fancy that particular month. Uh, the first one we did was for Cano Water, where we uh, th there is some sort of sporting event that we're not allowed to mention for legal reasons, apparently, uh, that has some sort of logo that looks a little bit like five cans of water that happen to be attached together. Um, so a bit of creative we're doing from that point of view. Um, the one that we did this time was if England did win the European Championship, spoiler, if you haven't seen Sunday, we won't talk about it, but rename the Lion Enclosure to Wembley Stadium. So this kind of thing, we are coming up with our ideas, but we are using very much their brand guidelines. We're using their tropes that we're using the identity that they have created for themselves, because that brings meaning to the ideas that we've got. So let's talk about fame for a second. Why do we even want to do this? Why do we want to get these ideas out there? Why do we want to uh, do these kind of things if we are those brands? Why, why are we appreciative if this kind of thing happens? 
Um, and it comes to share of mind. It comes to why fame is more important than just getting the job done, kind of. Brand awareness is great. People being aware that a brand exists is a pretty much a minimum requirement, to be honest, in marketing. So when we're shooting for brand awareness as a campaign metric, that's cool, but maybe let's aim a little bit higher. Brand awareness is people know that it exists. Salience is people know that it exists often. So the kind of brands that you might say are salient are the ones that you go on TV and you think, I've seen this, I've loads, they're everywhere, that type of thing. Fame is when they're the first thing you possibly think of when you think of that category. That is when you are thinking about uh, vegetable-based carbonated beverages and you think Coca-Cola, that type of thing. That's brand fame where you're thinking about a particular type of car and you think, aha, Audi, famous brands. These are the ones that jump out at you because they have hacked into your brain. They've got an idea that is so big that they've got a concept or a set of campaigns that are so wide ranging that you can't avoid them over a period of time and they just become lodged in the public conscious. And the benefit of fame is, is influence. It's whatever you do when you are a famous brand, when you are Ikea and you've got those marketing tropes and someone wants to use that, you're famous enough that you bring that context to that conversation. You are so famous as a brand that your creative looks, ah, that's Ikea. You can see it from a mile away. And that brings brand new context to the ideas that are coming from anywhere else. It's that combination uh, that, that we can leverage when we're marketers. So what that means is if you're Ikea, you've spent that money, you've spent that time, you've built that fame, you've got a massive advantage over everyone else because everyone else can do your marketing for you. Everyone else can mention you in, in on Twitter and mention you on social media and use your imagery and, and get you out there without you having to pay for that. So I'm going to hand over to Carrie for a, a little bit to talk about some of our disruptive ideas. And these are disruptive in all sorts of different ways. Uh, I kind of give a little bit of context to the to Kath Kidson one and, and, and hand over uh, in a sec. But Kath Kidson is a, a brand that we've been working with for just over, just over a year. And Kath uh, historically has a public image. Um, it, it, it's being kind of a, an aging demographic particularly, and they haven't necessarily... Uh, being the coolest brand for a very long time and the kind of briefs that we typically take on the kind of brands that we work with are either ones that are super cool right now and want to stay that way and want to pull away from the pack the pretty little things of the world but also the brands that aren't that cool and know that there's benefits if they are they want to change that perception too so I'm, I'm going to let Carrie talk over Kath Kidson's dog model. Hmm. So Kath Kinson came to us um, just over a year ago and admittedly it was when they was going through a bit of a struggling time. Kath Kinson really was impacted by the pandemic. So they had 70 maybe or something like that off the top of my head, high street stores. Every single one of them closed. Because of that, a lot of people were made redundant. So the majority of Kath Kinson's press and social engagement was very, very negative. And I'm talking about, I think the way that Kath Kinson handled it and you know a lot of kind of redundancies and things like that. They Anything Kath Kinson did, whether it was a TV ad, whether it was you know a social graphic, they got hammered. So they came to us because they knew they needed to change their audience. They knew they needed to target a more younger audience. They needed to be a bit more braver than they were internally. Um, and admittedly, that was a challenge for us because um, we're happy to take on these sort of briefs, but trying to turn around a ship, 
like that was hard. Kids have done this all their lives. So what we actually did is um, we put a case together for um, a campaign for them. It is our first campaign for them for the dog model. Get to the next slide. So cat kids have needed a dog to model their new pet collection. And usually what a brand like that does is they go to an, a, a pet agency. So a pet agency is somewhere where you just hire a dog, take a few pictures in their outfits and then, you know, post it on their socials and on their website. And instead of using an agent, we actually decided to launch a nationwide PR and social campaign to find the next CK dog model. So CK is kind of playing on the Kath Kidson, uh, not Kath Kidson, Calvin Klein kind of angle as well. Um, but we knew that Kath Kidson's audience owned dogs. All of them are dog crazy. And we thought, you know, why don't we actually give them the chance to actually become the next dog model? What we did is we placed a job ad, a typical job ad on their website. So it just looked like a normal, like within their career section. And it's basically who's been a good boy, who wants to be our next cat uh, kids and dog model, big social campaign. And um, we did um, across Facebook and Instagram, I think, with the two platforms that there was most um, priority for those. And we, we pushed this out to press. So not only was it pushing out to social, people submitted images of their dogs to become the next model. And they also got the full Cath Kidson collection as well. Um, and I think they got paid to do the photo shoot as well. So it was like a big campaign that, honest to God, we had hundreds and thousands of people apply to get their dog as the next model. Media went wild for it. So every regional press could put, picked it up. We had Tyler, we had Marie Claire. Um, it was on um, Hello, OK Magazine off the top of my head. So all of the nationals picked this up because you know you could, your dog could become the next model. It's not just an opportunity or a dream job for a normal person like myself, but it's also get your dog in there and get the full kit as well. So yeah, press picked this up, which is the first part of really going viral and getting engagement because I guess if you can go viral on social and get press pickup, that's that's the dream. That's the the gem and the the way that we really amplify everything is is tying those two things together. And this is where we started. We started with the media. And this is what happened on social. We had 14,000 dogs apply to be the next model. I did not go through those. We had a girl called Ellie um, and she actually sat through every single one of them, went through all the pictures. And, and honestly, I think she spent at least three days just like, oh, look at this one, like so cute. Um, but yeah, the submissions were amazing. It was just like from Instagram, a lot, obviously we had like loads of positive um, mentions of Kath Kidson. It was interesting because because they was getting so many negative press and a lot of our entries was mentioning dog um, as an example, we, you know, we kind of dominated the negative press with loads of images of dogs. Um, so and lots of negative noise on social media with just dog images that drowned out that negativity and, and turned the, the mentions of Cat Kidson instantly positive. So that was the strategy ultimately, whilst also running a campaign that delivered results. So yeah, we really helped turn Cat Kidson into positive noise in, in a space of just a couple of days. And um, social media, so on um, the media, when they share it on social, so like Tyler magazines, uh, we got a lot of engagement. So like 2000 comments on Tyler, people tagging their friends. And that's the interesting thing is like, oh my God, you need to put, you know, um, Coco as part of this. Like, I think I tagged my mum's, like my mum and said, put Coco in as an example. Um, so yeah, everybody was tagging their friends. And that's what got people kind of engaged is um, the, the engagement was like, to share it as wide as possible and getting as many people to be engaged with it. Um, and yeah, it, it worked.
Interflora is another one that where we've been disrupted. So Interflora, um, I guess they also came to us, which is really interesting to be disruptive. They really wanted to dominate their space. They admittedly said their their audience are a lot more older, older demographic. And whereas Bloom and Wild have came along and taken a, a younger audience, so they were thinking, how can we, you know, dominate our space when it comes to Father's Day? So this is what we did. What we wanted to do was normalize gifting flowers to men on Father's Day. So essentially, um, we actually found a stat online that the majority of men receive flowers for their first time at their funerals, which is crazy. I actually went around the office and I asked most men in the office, have you ever received flowers? And they was like, no, I don't think so. And um, so we wanted to normalize it, normalize men getting flowers on Father's Day, because we also saw that the most common searches around Father's Day was what the hell to buy your dad. Like people just like, oh, shall I just get him a beer? You know, like there's a lot of like discussion and struggle when it comes to what what presents should I buy my dad on Father's Day or granddad or stepdads. So we wanted to normalize gifting flowers to dads on Father's Day. So we created a social media campaign using TikTok, Instagram. We did everything using influencers where we basically got people to hand over flowers and, and film their reactions. So dads were obviously a bit like, oh, is that for mom? And they're like, no, it's for you. And their reactions was just amazing. We used around 10 influencers at the time um, and we got around 300,000 views and um, the engagements was crazy we drove around 2100 people to their father's day category on their page which didn't really drive much traffic last year so in comparison that's huge and 243 transactions so 243 people came to the website and bought father's day flowers um, which is crazy this is not something that has always been a norm so we actually encourage people to then actually act on this and, and make a purchase, which, uh, which every campaign can do as well. So it was a social campaign. We did some PR around it as well. So we actually landed on like ad week. This was all to drive brand awareness. We wanted everybody to know that all Interflora were the ones, you know, normalizing gifting flowers to men. So we went to all the big campaign press, drum, campaign week, um, et cetera. And I think it landed on maybe the Daily Mail as well, something like that. So yeah, we, it was, we put a lot of PR behind it as in like pushed it out to press around the messaging. And then we obviously used influencers to capture them beautiful moments on TikTok and Instagram as well. And this is what happened. So this was the search impressions um, impact year impact year on year. So if you compare 2020 versus 2021, this is the search impact of or specifically uh, of Father's Day around that time. So you can see that our campaign had a much bigger impact in terms of people searching for Father's Day flowers and um, searching for Interflora as a brand. Um, and this in, in effect then drove traffic and then obviously sales as well. But you can just see that, you know, being disrupted doing a campaign that changes what people know to be normal I guess um, really worked for you know improving brand awareness and driving traffic to the website as well and this is now happening long term so um, there's actually international men's day coming up I think it might be August September something like that um, and again this is something that Interflora are going to capitalize on around really supporting men around gifting flowers for them so this is like a long-term strategy not necessarily a one hit one day it has a long-term effect so gave you an example of working with a brand that didn't want to say anything because they were terrified of being slighted. We're giving you an example of telling a brand that we're going to go for the exact opposite of their target audience. 
This is an example of working with a company to do something completely different with the budget that they've already allocated to something. So when we started working with Taylor and Hart, they uh, mid pandemic had already committed a bunch of spend to digital out of home and out of home media. You know, that, of course, that's a massive channel for them. That's a massive channel for lots of brands. There is uh, pretty much all of our clients do out of home in some respect. Uh, I, I think pretty much all of them. Um, but what had happened was we're in the middle of a lockdown. There is very little foot traffic in London where a lot of their target audience is. Um, so they didn't want to lose this budget that they committed, but at the same time, they didn't want to just do some usual product shots, the same as they always do, which do sell, that are beautiful, that do convince people to buy, but don't have the eyeballs available to be able to drive sales that they usually would. So we did the world's first ever FaceTime photo shoot in a marketing campaign. We hired a FaceTime photographer called Tim Dunk, and we chose um, several couples from out of Taylor and Hart's previous buyers uh, to have a professional photo shoot done entirely through FaceTime. And you can see some of the images just on the billboards, that one's in St. Pancras, but uh, there is a few all over the world. And they are absolutely stunning images. Like the fact that you can capture something that good through FaceTime on a camera is in and of itself completely different to what you would usually expect when we're talking about um, photography equipment and what you would need to be able to do a professional photo shoot. So we worked with an award-winning photographer um, and we originally ran a competition just through Taylor and Hart's email channels to their own database of customers. And we chose uh, a diverse group of people that we thought represented love in all sorts of different respects and not just, you know, the usual sort of uh, usual sort of couples. We included the uh, product in a lot of these images as well. So you can see various uh, various shots that there are engagement rings in there. You can see the engagement ring that they bought from Taylor and Hart. But the message that we wanted to get across is that this is live, this is happening currently. And um, we actually had some digital stuff, which was theoretically live. It wasn't quite live, but um, you know, love is existing throughout the pandemic. Love is happening all around us. And you might just not know about it because everyone's shut behind closed doors. But doing something a little bit different with a campaign spend, where usually we just do something very direct response. Here's a beautiful uh, engagement ring. You should definitely inquire with Taylor and Hart through to something that's much more brand focused and much more sort of wide ranging as a message. Um, again, we, we, we need to convince them that, that there's a, um, a benefit to this over and above the, uh, the product shots in there. One thing I loved about that campaign mostly is because because we was all in lockdown, the use of professional equipment was limited. So, um, you know, we couldn't go and hire like pro photographers or videographers or anything like that. So actually the angle of being a FaceTime photo shoot and it just being a, like based on FaceTime is just that simple PR hook that actually made it work as well. So, yeah, I think the simplicity sometimes of campaigns can can actually be an amplifier, if that makes sense. Um, Club Med, this is an interesting one because we've been working with them for maybe the past, yeah, past year and a half, something like that. Club Med are an international travel brand, meaning they very much struggled during the pandemic. It was very interesting because um, they have um, locations all around the world from France to Switzerland, Italy, you name it. And essentially a few of their locations stayed open because of, um, you know, they didn't have that many cases over there in that country. But the world didn't know that. They, the world thought the world was shut. 
So they was like, we need to get out, you know, the certain locations that are open, the ones that are welcoming um, visitors, etc. And these were limited. I'm talking, say, 150 locations, for an example, th only three were open. So they said, come up with an idea to basically dominate press around the travel industry because travel was very quiet. So it's like, how do we make sure that Club Med are mentioned during this time? And it was to promote their ski resorts. So ski resorts were open during, I think it was um, Christmas this year, just gone. So ski resorts were taking visitors, visitors, but they didn't get that many bookings because obviously the, the mass awareness of the world is closed. So Club Ed said, come up with an idea to dominate press and drive awareness and traffic um, to our website during the Christmas period. So it was, oh, yeah, <laughs> I was about to say skip. Uh, this is what we did. So this is a picture of their um, normal hotel room. And um, this is similarly what they look like. I can't remember the location of this. I think this was in France. I think it was. So this is one of their French locations, basically. Um, and essentially, they said, um, come up with an idea to, you know, build, build awareness during this time. And what we actually did is we looked at, okay, what's trending? That's where we usually start. And I did mention this, I think, on the last podcast um, or webinar with you guys, is if we know what's trending in the press and we can put that our brands at the center of trending topics, that's what amplifies stories. So the whole IKEA thing, for an example, is because we put IKEA at the center of a trending topic, which was Bernie Sanders. And that's why why it spreads so it's like what is trending at this time and it was good next chocolate orange terry's chocolate orange every single year gets picked up at, at christmas time and i'm talking it's the most talked about product around christmas ever every single year like it beats celebrations it beats any other kind of like chocolate brand and um, like it's one of the most talked about products and we thought we need to do something on this what we did is we um, we actually designed their hotel room to be chocolate orange themed. This sounds crazy, right? They obviously, when we pitched this idea, was like, right, we want to create the world's first chocolate orange hotel room. And they uh, kind of looked at us like, really? And we're like, yes, really. We obviously proved this is a trending topic. This is going to dominate the space. Like it is going to work. What we did is we mocked up the room um, as a design. Their designers then was like, actually, this is looking quite good. And this is something that we can actually produce. So it's something that we launched a, a web page about it. So where you can actually go and book and stay in their French resort. Um, so it was a, a landing page where you could put in your email address and then you get like alerted to when it's free, basically. So you could go and book it. Um, and we pushed it to press. So this was actually real. Club Med basically said, if we get bookings for this, we will produce it. Um, and this is what happened. We drove, um, the cam yeah, campaign managed to dominate the travel news around that time. So we drove 115 links back to the page. So um, everything from Yahoo, MSN, Time Out, Travel and Leisure in the Sun, all the national press and travel press was talking about our campaign. Everybody wanted to stay in the Chocolate Orange ho Hotel and people was going wild for it. So we knew that because we got so many bookings as well, we got, um, I think off the top of my head, um, a few hundred people maybe applied to actually stay there. Um, then we was like, right, let's go book it. And actually, well, let's go create it. And actually we are currently producing a white chocolate orange hotel. I don't know whether I should have told you that, but there's a bit of a, a sneaky uh, preview. We're creating a white chocolate one um, down in France as well. Um, so yeah, we got 126 mentions um, of the brand um, overall in, with 80% of them having a link through 
what did I say? Link through rate. So basically, 87% of press um, had links back to the website and it got covered in 16 countries. Because this was as an international travel campaign, not just French publications or UK publications talk about it. We had Australia, we had Mexico, we had US, India, Japan, all of these publications talking about this chocolate orange hotel. And this is a way to really dominate the travel space when it was quiet. So we needed to come up with something that was completely wild, something that, you know, raised their brows. And Club Med actually said, you guys have pushed the boundaries in what we believe is possible as a brand. And that was magical. That's something that we are here to do is give confidence to brands to do things differently. And they've said, we never thought this sort of thing was possible and you guys have made it possible. And now, you know, the team are caught, like the team are waiting for the world to open so they can go build the white chocolate room now. And um, so they're gonna fly over to France and actually build it with a with a team of designers. Um, so yeah, this this is an incredible campaign that dominated the travel space. It meant loads of positive um, brand sentiment um, around Club Med during, you know, a tough travel period. Um, and now that, you know, they have summer staycations and, and winter as well, then they've seen real positive up uptake um, when the world opened again basically that was that was the challenge and social of course went wild for it and because the thing is club um chocolate orange as a as a theme really um is popular on social then we knew social media would go crazy for it so straight away we saw lad bible the mirror metro these were all sharing their press articles on social because of it because they were trying to get as much engagement as possible so ultimately what we tried to do is think about if journalists, their KPIs is social engagement, is traffic from, from the web, basically, how do, how do we help them hit their KPIs? And if we can create a social first campaign, so something that we know is going to get shared on social, then that's where we are going to get the coverage. Do you want me to do this one, Kenneth? Or you? Oh, you're on mute. I'm on mute. I'm on mute. Yeah. Uh, I'll blitz through. It's fine. Uh, so this one, I don't think we've, I don't think we've spoken about this one really. Uh, this is best. This is the best part of a year old. So um, we work with a U.S. injury law firm who um, do a lot of work around accident at work. And this is probably within about six months of Tiger King uh, when that happened at the beginning beginning of the first lockdown. So Saf in Tiger King lost a hand um, in an accident at work. So we thought that actually we could use someone who's very high profile at the time, uh, to raise awareness of what happens when you have an accident at work and what it's, what it's like. So, uh, we work with staff, uh, to set up a bunch of interviews with press, build high quality and authoritative links in a creative way. Uh, and we basically created a TV commercial. So, uh, in collaboration with, with a guy called David Haskins, we put a TV commercial together um that kind of highlighted what it's like to have an accident at work so we had a, an expert attorney lewis from beta scott who interviewed saf to talk about um what experience did she have what was the uh what was the what would be the upside for her if she was to claim um for an accident at work it's a really interesting commercial actually because one of the things what basically saf said that she really loves her job and she doesn't want to claim, but not everyone is quite so fortunate. So the message that came out of it was maybe a little bit different to what we really expected that would happen. But she talked about it so much like, I love my job so much that I don't want to do this, but I know that not everyone is so fortunate that when they have an accident that lays them off from a job that they love, that they can come back to, they can't come back. They can't have that, um, they can't have that normal life again at the end of it. 
so we launched the commercial and then pushed it to press and got a bunch of um, particularly like entertainment press, but also the fact that this was shot so seriously, this was shot without the kind of tongue-in-cheekness that you would probably expect from a campaign like this meant that it went um, particularly well on legal press as well and attracted the exact audience that actually would be potentially able to claim. Uh, set up exclusive interviews, lots of different, uh, lots of different states as well. The way that press works in the states is a little bit different to the UK because each state has its own press. Each state has journalists who behave very differently and audiences that want very different things. So setting up exclusive interviews with some strategic publications around the US and not just focusing on uh, on the area where where Beta Scott are, which I think is Texas. Um, and got a bunch of links, a bunch of placements, and a lot of really positive. Uh, sentiment around around the brand as well which is not something that injury law brands typically get either and that was an interesting one because um SAF at the time was obviously big because Tiger King was big so we basically we contacted SAF and said we want you to be part of a campaign for an inj personal injury lawyer we know that obviously you lost your arm because of um the lions etc or tigers whatever it was uh yeah Tiger Tiger King <laughs> um <laughs> and he actually didn't charge us so that it basically was like, yeah, I want to be part of this. Um, this is something that I'd happily do for free. Um, so it's in crazy just for, to ask um, in those cases, if you have an idea, maybe it's actually possible. I'm not going to say that happens most times. So if you're going to want to use a celebrity or an influencer or anyone like that, that doesn't always happen. But because this was a personal injury case, actually staff was happy to do this um, for, for pretty much for free. Um, which is crazy, but that really amplified the campaign. That really was the hook around how do we raise awareness for you know a, a smaller injury firm, basically. And I don't know if I've talked about this one before. Um, I definitely have on on other other situations, but this one's an interesting one, and I'll fly through it. So this is Ricky. Ricky are a small sex toy brand, and essentially they are up against the likes of Love Honey and Summers. And if you don't really know, um or uh, I guess, or looked into the industry, the sex toy industry is very competitive. It's very difficult to kind of rank. It's very difficult to build a brand in that space without looking like a, you know, looking spammy basically. So you have to really be on the ball in terms of being disruptive whilst also being trusted as a brand as well, making sure you don't just look like you're talking about sex all the time. So Ricky came to us as a small brand and said, help, help me basically dominate my space. Um, how do we come up with something massive? We've actually a really small budget. This is a startup business. He didn't have much money to go off at all. And he also needed a campaign that was going to drive him revenue. So then he could run another campaign and another campaign. So, you know, he was tight with money in terms of, I need something that can drive me revenue to then build a brand and business um, ongoing. And yeah, we was the right band for that. So Ricky needed links. He knew that they needed campaigns, which not only like was it for SEO, but built brand, drove traffic and generated sales. They were up against obviously the big boys. So needed something to stand out. And this is what we did. So we worked with Ricky and created 200 chocolate Easter eggs. So this was around Easter time uh, last year or year before. Um, and we basically created 200 Easter eggs. And inside there was 
a toy, so a sex toy. So it was a bit like a kinder egg, you know, a, ki a kid's kinder egg. When you open it, you have a little toy inside. We basically created that, the world's first one, where there was a sex toy inside. We used their, basically, their bullets, their vibrators, their wands, and we basically put them inside the eggs. And we actually just worked with a, a chocolatier, and it was around... I asked, um, I asked how much this cost actually. And I think it was like £2.50 for, for every egg created. So it weren't even expensive to work the, with these chocolatiers. We just needed to come up with an idea, obviously, to dominate press during that time, get Ricky in the press, get everybody talking about them, whilst also, you know, kind of being a bit cheeky at Easter time as well. So yeah, the world's first um, Easter egg with a sex toy inside. This obviously generated a lot of noise. So social media went crazy for it. We actually had, um, it was interesting. If you don't know Lewis Ellis, Lewis Ellis is originally from um, the BBC's Apprentice. I think he was a, a reject. So he didn't actually get the investment from Lord Sugar, uh, but he saw our campaign and he was like, oh my God, I really want to be a brand ambassador for Ricky. This is like amazing. Like some of the things you guys are doing. We actually had Alex Fox. So Alex Fox is the script writer for sex education I think yeah um on Netflix and essentially um she comments she contacted us and said um can I have a Ricky Easter egg and I'll do a giveaway because she had thousands of followers so we didn't need to pay her or anything like that these are people with massive audience massive influence that contacted us wanting to be part of the brand um so yeah social media obviously um went crazy for it and overall, we drove 51 media placements, driving 20,500 people to the website to buy an egg and actually drove direct revenue of around 10K as well. So this is people that came to the website and actually bought something, whether that was the, one of the eggs or then another toy as well, of around 10K revenue. That is huge for this brand. Bear in mind, a small startup brand getting 20,000 visits to their website. That's more than he ever had in his lifetime that he had during the space of Easter week. So that's crazy. And we sold out. We sold out pretty fast, to be fair. 200 Easter eggs is not actually that hard to uh, to flog. So we had to, we actually had a different strategy. So Ricky basically said, I need, um, I need to be able to capture email addresses so I can retarget them to be able to actually get customers to come back to me again. I want to be able to launch campaigns like this all the time and actually just encourage them to come back through email newsletters. So when we sold out, we actually was trying to get some more Easter eggs made, um, but we was a bit time struck, et cetera. So what we created is like an item out of stock, notify me when it comes back into stock. So we basically just had an email capture and we actually got, I think 10,000, I think email addresses as well, which is, which is crazy. So this is 10, thousand people saying yeah i want to know when your next campaign comes out i want to i want to buy your next easter egg or buy your next product um and this obviously is is great for driving extra revenue so to continue this obviously during that campaign we spotted something um lewis from the apprentice was like can i be a brand ambassador so we thought, you know, is he being serious? So I messaged him, I was like, are you actually being serious? Because we'd love to have you as a brand ambassador, you know, ex-apprentice reject be becomes sex toy ambassador. Like that is a press headline in itself. So he was like, yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Um, so we came up with an idea. We said, why don't we launch a dream job kind of ad 
where you could become an official sex toy tester during lockdown. So it was during the COVID pandemic and we will pay you to test sex, sex toys. Um, and Lewis Ellis was the first. So he was the one that tested all the sex toys. Um, and then he wanted obviously somebody to join him. So this was him promoting. So I'm officially now a certified sex toy tester. He did videos, TikToks, you name it. it everybody was going crazy for the fact that, you know, he's an ex-BBC apprentice, serious businessman now testing sex toys. Press picked this up as an extra hook, but everybody wanted to join him. He wanted, you know, people wanted to become the second sex toy tester alongside Lewis. So we had a, a web a campaign page basically driving as many traffic as, as much traffic as possible, saying if you want to become the next one, apply here. So social went crazy for it. This the next slide. And as a result of this amplification, we got another five links back to the website. It drove another 9,000 visits, visits and we got 10,000 applications. So this is like, how do we take a campaign and make it further and further every single time? This is what's something that we look for at Rise. We don't just do a campaign and then go, yay, we finished and here's the results. We constantly think, how can we keep pushing this to its to its maximum? And obviously, during it, because it was during the Easter period, we knew that, okay, when Easter is been and gone, it's been and gone. You don't kind of come back with the egg because it, you know it's no longer timely so we needed to come up with an extra hook that could keep the campaign going for longer and that's what the Lewis Ellis was and this is the total so um really successful campaign but it really shows that despite being a startup sex brand in a you know a really difficult industry that we could really come up with something that dominated and it actually didn't cost that much money you know wrapping some sex toys that ricky already had didn't need to pay anything for it in some chocolate cost two pound fifty um not a bad campaign at all so we've got a bunch of questions and not a lot of time and i've got some slides so what i'm going to go what i'm going to do is i'm going to answer questions during slides this might go terribly wrong we'll try <laughs> why aren't people doing disruptive things so firstly Bureaucracy exists to protect a business. The reason that businesses don't sign things off, the reason that it's so slow to get a business case through, the reason that procurement stops you spending money, that the reason that legal stop things is because big businesses can get taken down by one person who goes rogue. So they make it difficult for that one person that really caused that much damage because they need buy-in from lots of people what you need to be able to do these things is buy in from a few people i'm going to talk about how to do some of those things so when we're looking at the people at the top of the organization what do they really want what are they after because most of the time the c-suite the owner the founder of the business does not care about marketing campaigns fame is nice how do you pay the bills with fame is probably the kind of sentiment that we often get the people at the top of the business want three things they want speed they want profit and they want to reduce the risk that third one, reducing the risk, is where things get a little bit difficult. We've got to accept that when Leo Burnett says to swear off making mistakes is really easy, you just have to stop having ideas. That's probably true. You are always going to make mistakes. And Peter F. Joker, who's the founder of consulting, um, says all profit comes from risk. That's true. Those two things are not mutually exclusive, right? So you cannot create profit for your business without taking some risk somewhere. The fact that your business exists means that someone somewhere took some risk. Someone put their house on the line, their marriage on the line, whatever it might have been, they have gone and taken some risk to put their own capital, to put their own time, their own effort, to be unemployed apart from by themselves, to put a business together. So 
there clearly is an appetite for risk somewhere and we've just got to find it. So some of the things that we do, uh, anchor high is one of the, let's say one of the oldest tricks in the book. So one thing that we often do is when we have an idea that we think is really fun and wild, we will make an effort to make one that's even weirder, even more out there, more dangerous, potentially offensive. And we'll pitch that first. We'll say, right, hold on to your socks. This is what we're going to do and pitch the craziest thing we could possibly pitch. Then we'll pitch the idea that's perfectly sensible and well-grounded in reality. And then we'll pitch something really boring. And the way that people respond to this is firstly, they compare the second one to the first one and think, oh, thank God, that's much safer. And then they compare the second one to the third one and go, well, we aren't going to get anything from that. So there's really no point in doing it. So we do this from an ideas point of view. We do this from a budget point of view. One of the first big briefs we ever won, we had a, a large gambling brand come to us that said that we've got £18,000 for an SEO campaign. But if we can show some brand angles to it, we could probably extend that to 100 grand. So we turned up and we said, we're going to show you a million pound campaign. And the result was somewhere in between. <laughs> when you are in marketing, it can be very tempting to try and be the hero. You're coming up with a campaign. You are going to change the world. You are going to single-handedly reverse the fortunes of that Kidston brand that people are negative about. I saw Aoife asked the question about why people were negative. Basically, Kath went into administration, got bought out by a, a Middle Eastern private equity firm and had to close all the stores. They only bought the licenses. So as a result, Kath Kidston went bankrupt. 800 people no longer have jobs. And every time Kath Kidson was mentioned anywhere, everyone would jump in and cancel Kath as best as they possibly could. In marketing, your, your first instinct is always to be like, I can turn this around. I can solve this problem. And in fact, it's not just your problem, it's customer services problem. It's everybody's problem. When you're pitching ideas, it's really important to pitch them, to not ask for permission to do something that might be a little bit out of the comfort zone, but to say, this is what we should do. Instead of saying, could we do this? Instead of saying, I think it might be interesting if we did this. Uh, instead of saying, I propose that this is something we could do. We say, I've looked at all of the data. I have understood what the audience want. And this is my recommendation. We should do this. It's so much more difficult when you speak with authority to reverse that decision. Because as a marketer, you know, you probably have been in at least in a couple of situations where you think, I'm the expert here. These guys should just take what I'm saying seriously. And in fact, it could just be the way that you're saying it. When you speak with authority, when you say, I think that there is no alternative but to do this, actually, this is my recommended solution. People are, people are much more keen to do it. Um, one of my favorite films is The Wolf of Wall Street. Jordan Belfort is a sales trainer. And one of the ways that he pitches business, but actually one of the ways that we pitch ideas is using the straight line system for sales. So the straight line is this, right? If this is a sales conversation, you introduce yourself and then it's a steady, smooth ride until the client, the prospect says, please take my money. Obviously, it doesn't work that way. What happens is there are objections. You're saying we should do this. And they go, what about the cost? They go, what about the risk? And actually, what you can easily do is anticipate what those objections are going to be. If you spend half an hour, an hour before you do your pitch to your boss, to your client, whoever it might be, and brainstorm, just list all of the objections that happen, you will probably find that there is about seven of them. 
And they're always the same. They're always the same things that come up. And all you need to do is have a response ready for those things. So when someone says, what about the risk? And the risk is usually the biggest challenge. I saw someone asked, let me just check who asked. Um, Harvey asked, was it difficult to get the license for the broken car? We don't do licenses. Um, someone asked, what about uh, if a client doesn't appreciate the fact that you have done something for them. What happens is you get a, a message that says, please take that down and you go, sorry. And that's the end of it. The risk is relatively low. We have clients who have legal departments who basically take the cost of being sued versus the upside that we propose for a campaign and go, think it's worth it. And they'll go yeah. with it. That's the first time I've seen that as well. So like we work in, I'm not saying who, but it's a, a big fast fashion brand. Um, we work with a few of them, but this one in particular, essentially we pitched an, a massive idea around Coachella. Um, and they was like, yeah, but don't, they was like, do we need a license for Coachella for this idea? And I was like, well, um, we can, we can't. It's up to you guys whether, you know. And they basically said, right, leave it with us. We'll do our usual. And I was like, what's your usual? She said, we'll pitch the idea to legal. Legal work out the cost of being sued from Coachella versus the cost of returning the investment. So if it's worth it, then we'll go for it. In a sense, they went for it. They said, we're, we're gonna make more money if we go for it versus whether we're getting sued. That's crazy. I've never seen a brand be so brave. And I didn't really knew that that happened before, um, but it does. And you've got to really understand for, for us, like every time, if ever I've caused, you know, a bit of an issue where a brand said, can you take that down please? So the, the can of water, you know, the rings of obviously the Olympics, basically we tweeted that out and Olympics said, can we, can you take that down? We'd already got a load of engagement on social. It was like, yeah, of course, take it down. Like we've already done our job. Um, so um, we took it down and that's it. Like you're not going to go to court unless you're making a lot of money from it. If you're printing t-shirts with their logo on, you know, that sort of thing, which we weren't doing. Definitely. Uh, I'm going to finish up. How much time have we got, Joe? Like, can we do like two more minutes? Yeah, yeah, of course. Of course you can. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <We're> all <laughs> Um, The most important thing when we're pitching ideas, the most important thing for getting sign off is that we need to understand who is our emotional buyer. Who is the person that gets the pain when we don't do this campaign? And the answer is never marketing. The answer is never. The marketing director will be upset if this campaign doesn't go live. That's not why things don't work. The answer is, if the campaign doesn't go live, we don't make this money that we need to make. We don't change the sentiment. If we don't change the sentiment, whose problem is it that we don't change that sentiment? It might be the customer services team. We can save money in the contact center. There are so many people around the organization that would be the person who is more likely to be your ally here than someone who's going to have to just go up against legal because legal's job is to say no. Legal will always, always say no unless we've got a case and a case can actually just be someone willing to stick their neck out with you. So I'm going to tell a story. It's going to be a very brief story about emotional buyers. And this is the story about how KFC ran out of chicken. So KFC... Uh, I don't I, I, I'm guessing everyone remembers this because it wasn't too long ago and it cut me deep. But there was a particular day that 
stretched into the months where KFC did not have chicken. And the reason that this happened is because they changed suppliers. They didn't change suppliers of chicken. They su changed suppliers of delivery of chicken. They changed their logistics company. So Bidvest was the company that had delivered KFC chicken for years and years. They had six distribution centers around the UK that would have all the chicken ready, would take them to the individual uh, uh, KFC stores at the beginning of every day, because obviously chicken needs to be fresh, right? And um, they ran a pitch process where they found a new supplier, DHL, as it happened, who said, we can save you this many millions, if not billions of pounds, because what we're going to do is reduce your supply chain costs. And KFC went, brilliant, we'll do that. I would like to save millions, if not billions of pounds. And the way that DHL saved those costs is instead of having those six distribution centers around the UK, they had one. They had one depot that had all of the chicken that needed to go anywhere in the UK and they had it in the Midlands where there are a million other depots with other distribution companies who pay better. So DHL couldn't staff up fast enough. They couldn't get the drivers. They couldn't get the... Uh, the lanes clear to get from the depot to all of the stores. So it was literally a case of the chickens there. It just can't get anywhere because the supply chain had broken. And the reason that this happened, the reason that this, the way that this could have been avoided is if the emotional buyer here, like in this case, it could be marketing, it's probably customer service. The people who are going to feel the pain if this goes wrong, if the people who should have been on Bidvest side, we have got a really good thing going on here. And it's not just that we don't want, we like the status quo, but it's that we understand exactly how this is going to work and we can reduce the, the problems that people are going to have with us on, on social media channels, etc. weren't asked. They, those people weren't involved in that process. And the emotional buyer, in our case, in the case of a lot of our campaigns, the people who ultimately agree to do the things that we agree to that we we convince people to do are not the marketing clients they are the people who are involved in risk assessments they're the people who are involved in customer service they're the people who are involved in finance they are the people who go i need that money actually we should do that and where we kind of get stuck is we get stuck in with people that are always going to say no and in kfc's case procurement the people who are there to reduce costs that is their job are always going to reduce costs and we don't involve the people that we need to involve. So I've probably cut that story short enough that it just makes sense. Um, but I'm very conscious of time and I know we've got a bunch of questions and stuff. So I, I don't know if you want to carry on a little bit, Joe, or whether you want to wrap it up here. Absolutely. Well, let's take a few questions and, and, and thank you so much for that talk as well. It was, uh, <laughs> it was really great to see you in action as well. And there's a few things that struck me, um, but probably the the biggest one is it always starts with an idea right you know and 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 you know these ideas these connections that you're making uh so often you think about the the chocolate orange one for example then that was like such a, a lovely thing we know that chocolate oranges are going to be trending around christmas but then to put that that thought together with a hotel chain it, it's amazing it's really 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 interesting to see it in action so thank you for sharing there's a really lovely comment from uh, Sharon that just came through. It says, I just love and appreciate these sessions uh, so much. Great, knowledgeable speakers, entertaining and engaging too. Uh, so Sharon, thanks the sponsors there. But I think um, the fact that you guys have come in and sort of shared uh, what how these things happen, it's really, really valuable. So so thank you both for, for sharing that. 
Um, there are some questions open and there's still well over, uh, well, well over half the, the folks who started the session still here. So, so let's uh, take a couple of questions if it's okay with you and then we'll wrap up in about five minutes. Um, so the first one comes from Emily and Emily asks, uh, your examples today are from campaigns for brands who uh, quote unquote wanted to be disruptive. Uh, how do you pitch your ideas to brands that are more risk adverse? And I really loved, by the way, that you shared the example of the the, the personal injury lawyers, because I think that's a really great example of, of people doing that. But um, how about those folks who are just like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm really nervous or I'm not really sure I want to go for this idea. How, how do you work that, work that through? I, I think the first thing is to understand how much risk is tolerable because it's not binary, right? It's not a, yes, I'm open to risk or I'm not open to risk. It's a case of, okay, well, everyone's open to some form of risk. The business exists, so there is risk in it. How much risk? And the most risk averse businesses, particularly you know, financial services and legal and all that kind of thing, have a risk register. They literally have a document that says, how much risk are we willing to take? maybe they'll show it to you maybe they won't but what's important to understand is how much risk do we think is comfortable and again if we prepare that conversation we can say okay on a scale of one to ten where ten is definitely going to get us sued where seven is we're going to get some backlash and some complaints in the customer service department four might be some people say some mean things about us on social media and one is we just don't say anything at all how comfortable are we and as long as we frame that conversation to begin with no one ever says one like if they say one we don't want to say anything at all then the question is why have you got a marketing department like that's their job so clearly someone's interested in saying something um but if we if we then can establish from the people who are going to be the ones taking the risk ideally or at least the people who are going to assess that risk if we understand the state of play and we can say here is an idea it is a four this is what we've agreed to this is the worst risk that can happen here is some people are going to say some mean things about us on twitter and also it's worth mentioning people say mean things about everyone on twitter like you don't, <laughs> you don't even need to do anything controversial you're going to get something mean said about you if you are out there if you're a brand you're going to get something mean said about you so i think it's about planning i, I genuinely think it's just about framing that that risk in a way of here's the worst thing that's that's likely to happen here's the worst thing that could possibly happen and we think that the likelihood of that happening is one percent 0.1 percent um it puts things into perspective for people because when you don't understand marketing your mind races and you go yeah we're going to get sued as soon as we say anything that's what's going to happen so i think it's about framing it nice i nice. nearly always when it comes to risk averse brands um I always tell a story of a, another risk-averse brand actually being disruptive. So I'll give an example. I, I give examples every, before I do every pitch, by the way. So if I have an idea, I'll go, have you seen booking.com do this? Not, not obviously a risky brand. Or it might be, have you seen a financial services brand do this, et cetera, et cetera. Like we all started from zero. So every brand started being not very brave and not very disruptive and they become something. So Monzo, for an example, um, you know, a bank, turned disruptive so you can give clear examples of industries whether it's financial or anything like that i've worked with um lawyers i've worked with um a health and safety client around um children's safety and life around like how to do cpr and stuff like you're doing really kind of like difficult industries in that sense and if you can just show an example first and then pitch your campaign that always gets the better cut through because people are like yeah i want i want some of that 
Um, so yeah, so start with an example. Something I've only done once, and I really should do this this more. This is a little a while ago I've done. Um, back in the days that I used to pitch uh, a lot of ideas, um, I, I, I talked through a few different ideas and secretly all of those ideas already existed. They were all things that brands had done and said, do we feel that this is feasible? This campaign here, do we think that we could get that signed off? And then if the client said, no, I don't think I'd get that signed off. I'm like, well, actually this already exists and HSBC did it. So HSBC got this thing signed off. Mm-hmm. Are we saying that we are more risk averse, more comfortable and less likely to say something than HSBC are? Mm-hmm. No one likes that. <laughs> fight, probably, but um, it's always something that's worth pulling out when you can when you can tie those examples back to the brands themselves and get someone to try it on, like show a campaign and say, can we imagine our brand doing this? And if the answer is no, it's too much. And then say, well, HSBC did it. I'm picking on HSBC. There are other banks who are equal. <laughs> there are traditional banks. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love that. That, that. That's really interesting. And and like you've kind of answered the question, but I, maybe I'll ask it a little bit more directly, which is, um, do you, when you go in for your initial pitch, do you include these sort of, you, you went through the, the Belford uh, straight line method and, and would you preemptively uh, use these sort of risk points that you you predict are going to come up or are you more likely to just have them in the back pocket if they come up and, uh, and ask those questions so we're a bit of a weird agency in that we don't pitch creative so a client will work with us on the creative after we are agreed on the rules of engagement like in a, in a pitch we don't know we we've been in agencies where we're like right here are all the caveats before we present the thing the thing and what it says to the client is we don't stand behind this it doesn't matter that we think we know best what matters is what we think we will sign off Mm -hmm. so we just don't pitch creative it only happens once we've agreed we'll show case studies definitely and we'll say uh, we do talk a little bit about risk or or what, what people are comfortable with but we usually do that before a pitch interesting and and so uh, that is interesting. I mean, that so that sp- speaks to something else then, which is that um, it, you've presented today like a series of, of ideas that have been linked to challenges. So really it's the starting point for all of this, not necessarily the idea, but um, the acknowledgement that there's a business challenge that yeah, needs solving. Challenge. Nice. And, and so with that in mind, I mean, with the uh, the pitches or not the pitches, the creative sort of stuff that you're putting out on the seventh of every month, is that just you know? I mean, it's just a nice nice example of of creativity in action, right? But there's there's no necessary intention of it coming to pitch. Uh, and the reason why I, I asked this is like for those watching in today, you know, if you have an idea, it's not necessarily going to be like okay, let's go and do this idea. It's more going to be like okay, let's let's identify a business problem that we're trying to solve and therefore this is going to be far more compelling for- yeah exactly you can always find that business problem after you've come up with an idea as well um to shoehorn it in and that's not that hard it's actually probably easier i usually start with the idea and then find the problem um but ultimately when when the clients come to us and told us the problem already then we can obviously help solve it with, with creative um but yeah that we get you can do it in either way interesting okay that's great well thank you for sharing that 
Uh, cool. All right. Well, we are we've we've had our time, and, and like I, I want to be respectful to to you two as well as the audience as well uh, to to uh, free you into enjoying the rest of your day. So, uh, Stephen Carey, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing with us this morning. Um, the comments are coming in right now, uh, and and you know just uh, just just lovely lovely community lovely people and uh, it's quite clear that everyone's enjoyed it as well so uh thank you all thank you Stephen carrie thank you everyone watching in today thank you to our sponsors as well please do take the time to check out fiverr this week say thank you to lee ron uh, who was one of our previous uh speakers uh you'll get all that in the follow-up and uh yeah just hope you have a lovely lovely day uh, and take care of yourselves thanks very much <laughs>